However, standing by right now is the one and the only, Sean Mooney. Who? Mooney, everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. After you threw him off through the announce table, Taker climbs back down, he gets in the ring, and he goes, see if he's breathing. So right before I called 911, I thought she'd fallen asleep. Kind of shook her a little bit to, to wake her up, and she did not respond. I don't go down to my, go to my grave testifying or whatever, swearing that Davey was not on drugs. If he was on drugs, the way Brett says, how does, I mean, how great does that make Davey? Are you laughing, Sean? I get off the track here all the time. Did you just laugh, Sean? If they would do a movie about your life, who would you want to play your part? <laughs> uh, well, George Clooney, of course. <laughs> who else could it be? Attention, Sean Mooney, you scum, you slime, you maggot. If there's no further questions, you're dismissed. Carry on, maggot. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to Primetime with Sean Mooney. And last week... We had a great guest from the Attitude Era, Fake Razor, Rick Bogner. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, what an awesome guest Rick was. And um, I loved learning about his life. And, you know, he was quite an accomplished wrestler before he arrived in the WWE and also a martial artist. And, you know, you have to wonder what might have happened if he came into the WWE under different circumstances, um, you know, before having a gimmick that basically was a career killer. Uh, and I really enjoyed our conversation. I want to thank Rick Bogner for coming on. Uh, he, was, he was just awesome. This week, we are going old school once again. I love this. Uh, most people today remember our guest for being one of Vince McMahon's stooges, <laughs> along with Pat Patterson. I think you know who I'm talking about. But my friends, uh, this individual is so much more than that. And one of the most respected men in the history of professional wrestling, equally for what he accomplished both in and out of the ring. And now you get to hear all about it. Time for my conversation with the one and only Jerry Briscoe. Ding, ding, ding. Folks, my guest this week is a man whose career in wrestling has spanned seven decades. That's right, because he pretty much started when he was in uh, grade school and has lasted to this day. And what a life, covering just about every aspect you could imagine in the world of professional wrestling. Welcome, Gerald Briscoe. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on Primetime. How are you? Well, I'm doing great. Thanks for the introduction. It, it, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Sean. I remember back in the old days when we worked together, you were yeah. you were uh, an upcomer, and you 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 got up and you came and you did fantastic, and uh, you, you went on the green of pastures, and uh, and I'm proud yeah. to be back on your show. Yeah, well, I tell you, it's nice that uh, you know one way or another we've all stayed in touch, and uh, even after all these years, and it really is it's awesome. We've run into each other a couple of times. But, um, you know, I was just thinking before we came, came on, you know, everybody talks about, you know, the stooge. And I find it so ironic, though, that you ended your career in the ring as a stooge because that could not be further from the truth of uh, who you are and who you were throughout your career. Because, you know, you, you and Jack, your brother Jack, uh, knew very early on that that you could be successful in this business, not just in the ring, which a lot of guys would be very satisfied with, but early on, you guys were already thinking about the other parts of this, the business end. How did you guys 
uh, think that way at such a young age. Uh, Sean, uh, uh, awesome question. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, I, that was one of the, the most enjoyable times I ever had because there was no pressure on me and I could just go out and act stupid. And the and, and more stupid I was, the, the, the more we got over. So I just <laughs> went with the flow. And Pat Patterson used to hate the uh, term stooge, and I used to rib, rib Pat pretty much is what you said. Pat, we worked our entire career to, yeah. uh, you know, to, to be respected in ring with our work. And both of us, you know, achieve those heights, you know, where we're, yeah. I think we're both pretty well respected in the ring on our own. And uh, then to go for that, to that, that was a completely different character role. You're right. It, it was completely different and uh, something that, you know, that we got used to that I uh, love, but uh, Jack and I, you know, back to your question, Jack and I, when, when we first started out, we, you know, were fortunate enough to start amateur wrestling when we were young. My brother achieved great high he won a national championship, yeah. two-time All-American at Oklahoma State, and I followed with a wrestling scholarship to Oklahoma State also, didn't achieve the, the accolade that he did with the national championship, but uh, I was on a national championship team. And, um, and so uh, as we got out of college, uh, Jack was already he was a few years older than me. He was already in the business. So during my spring breaks and summertime, I would hook up with Leroy McGurk, who was a local promoter there in, in Oklahoma, who Jack started with, who was an Oklahoma State Cowboy also. And I'd drive the ring truck around. So I, I, I did that the old, the old school thing. You know, I drove around the spot show, set up, uh, set up the ring, set the seats up, set the box office up, sell tickets, do the settlement, pay the referees, pay the guys, load the ring back up and drive on to the next town. But, you know, when I was doing that, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd have uh, a pretty good, uh, what we call spot shows, you know, this show we run once a month. You'd have a pretty good crowd. So when I do the, do the settlement, I was told, you know, uh, 30% goes to the talent and 77% goes to the promoter. Oh, and, you yeah. know, I'd like I said, I went to college and I know what the difference between 70 and 30 percent, you know, <laughs> man, this is where the money's made. Right. You know? yeah. and so, and so, uh, as we went on in a career, you know, you never, you don't dream, you don't ever think you're going to get the opportunity, but it was just, you know, just the right timing when we came along. I'm really uh, thrilled, especially you with the guys that were during my era there, I mean, they're, they're, they're icons of the business, you know, and, uh, and guys that, that, that set the bar as high as it is, you know, the fonts, mm-hmm. the races and, uh, and guys like that, the buddy coat, the old Hills and, uh, Paul Jones and just, uh, uh Hawk and Hanson, just, I could go on and on. And, uh, we were blessed to, to be with her. So, so we were able to make some money. So we're in Georgia and, and at the time, Georgia, it was, there was, controversy even back in the in the in the in the, in the late 60s when when we were beginning this and uh there was a promotion split and so one side went with on their own like an independent and the other side of course was nwa and uh mm-hmm. they needed some funds and uh you know that's one thing my brother and i was always prideful of we were pretty frugal with with our bucks and uh we had the money to invest and so we started investing in georgia championship and then Jack came down to Florida and got over, and I came down to Florida, and we got over, then we got over as a tag team, and Eddie Graham ran into, uh, he was wanting to make a big land investment, and he needed some uh, some cash, and uh, and once again, we were able to come up with the cash, so uh, we were able to buy parts of Georgia and parts of uh, Florida, but we knew that at a pretty early age, that uh, 
the promotion, you know, you wasn't going to be able to be in the ring all your life. And what are you going to do? And so, uh, Jack was, you know, so good a world heavyweight champion and everything. Jack made a lot of money and, and, uh, a lot more than I did because he's world heavyweight champion. And, um, and along with that, uh, the territory, he was able to retire. So, uh, but I, you know, I needed something to do. So, uh, I, I, I continued on, on, the, on the racing trail uh, at that time there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And before we really get into that, uh, you know, the professional wrestling part of your career, uh, I want to go back because, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know where you came from and where this, uh, discipline came from to, like you said, you guys saved your money. Who does that at that age? When you start earning money, you're thinking, man, the first time I've got money, I'm going to spend it. But, uh, uh, growing up, I guess in Blackwell, Oklahoma, and if you look at a map folks, uh, it's, <laughs> it's North of Oklahoma city and you look at it and there's all these little towns everywhere. You know, there's you know, deer Creek and uh, Takawa and Brahman and what was that area like? And, and what was it like growing up? Uh, I, I think you had, uh, five siblings and, and, um, uh, I don't yes. know uh, what your parents' situation was, but I can't imagine it was, uh, you know, this, uh, uh luxurious life, uh, growing up. Well, uh, uh, it wasn't, uh, but it was, it was, uh, it was a lesson. We, I, I was actually born, uh, in a little town called Seminole and grew up the first two years I attended school. It was in a little town called Bowlegs, Oklahoma, uh-huh. named after Chief Billy Bowlegs, the great Seminole chief. And, uh, population barely 200. We like to say when the Briscoe family left, it went down to about 150, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was rural Oklahoma and, uh, yeah. and, uh, my dad, you know, my mom uh, was a uh, full-blooded Chickasaw Indian, and we 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 got head rights and and land allotments, you know, for when when uh, when the white people uh, forced us to move our homeland uh, from uh, Alabama, Mississippi, uh, and put us on a trail of tears and marched us out to Oklahoma, and we were allotted a, a allotment of land out there. So we're we're in southern Oklahoma, hilly hilly part of Oklahoma, beautiful spot, but not a lot of population, most mostly. Uh, indigenous people there that lived there from the five civilized tribes and uh and uh my oldest brother gene there were six of us my oldest brother gene he was, he was quite an athlete too he was uh, like a division two uh all-american basketball player big big old boy and uh mm. and my brother bill uh uh my my dad i'll get back to him my dad uh uh when uh, he had six kids, uh, it, it was, you know, right after the Dust Bowl. And, you know, in Oklahoma, at Dust Bowl, I don't know uh, if very many people know their history, but back back in the days, you know, the, they had a big dust storm. They'd cover up all the crops in Oklahoma. You know, the people were there. Everybody migrated out west. And so my dad got the bright idea that, you know, he going to load up the truck and moved to Beverly. But we didn't make it to Beverly Hills like the Beverly Hills. <laughs> I got somewhere in the valley, you know, where there's farms that you could pick fruit and everybody could go to work. So my dad hauled us all out there. My two older brothers, one stayed at school in Oklahoma and the other one uh, lied about his age and joined the Marine Corps and tried to get in uh, a Korean War, but, uh, but uh, couldn't do it because they found out his real age. Huh. And so uh, we we're all picking crops and finally my mom had enough of it. And she, she said, I'm, you know, loading up for them going back to Oklahoma. So my dad put us on a damn bus and, uh, Sent us back to Oklahoma. He had sold all of our allotment land, so we didn't have nothing. So my mom come from a big family, too. So uh, 
we uh, she called one of her sisters. She had two sisters in Oklahoma in Blackwell, so that, that's how we ended up in Blackwell. We went and stayed with them. Tell my mom to get on her feet and get us a house, and we moved into the house. And uh, that's when I got introduced to wrestling, though. Right. And you know, I was always teased because I would they called me half breed. You know, it was it was. It was so different back then, Sean. You know, I, I lived in a, in a town, Blackwell. It was a sunset town. I don't know if you're familiar with, with a sunset town in, 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 in the South, but uh, it's people of color are not allowed in the city limits after the sun goes down, penalty of death. And so it was a redneck town. And like I said, I got called all kinds of names. You know, we did have a dad, and we were poor, and uh, and we were, we were Native American. So, you know, but all of a sudden, you know, Jack started wrestling. I started wrestling and, uh, we got good at it and things started changing. I didn't get teased and bullied like yeah. I did before because yeah. I could handle myself and people started knowing it. So, uh, pretty soon people were trying to make friends with me instead of, uh, you know, uh, bullying me because uh, I was, I had a friend I saw out in Pittsburgh at a national wrestling tournament. They had to do it because he was a wealthy guy. They had to what, what? He said, I, Briscoe, I was friends with you, so I wouldn't get beat up because I knew if I <laughs> with you, nobody would pick a fight with me. So, so we, we come up the hard way, you know, scratching and fighting like everybody did out in rural Oklahoma. But it, it was quite a place to live up. It's one of those towns where everybody knows your name, everybody knows what you're doing. So my mom, I mean, if you were out late at night, you were doing something bad before you got home, she knew about it, you know. So and we got disciplined, and I think that, really helped us in wrestling. We got introduced to wrestling and uh, we kept on. Jack won a scholarship and then we moved to Stillwater and I finished uh, high school in Stillwater and, and you know, got a scholarship also at Oklahoma State. We both completed there and uh, Jack, uh, uh, Leroy, like I said earlier, Leroy McGurk was a local promoter in uh, in Oklahoma and, and uh, he liked Jack so he called, uh, called the coach and said, hey, he said, that guy would want to be a pro. And he said, I, let me talk to him. And Jack said, sure. Because Danny Hodge was our hero. Hodge grew up probably 15 miles away from uh, where my brother and I grew up. So uh, Jack started wrestling. I, I, uh, I stayed at Oklahoma State until I was a, a junior. And uh, then I realized, you know, that, that I wasn't. I was behind a world champion. And I just couldn't drop to the next weight. And I couldn't go up because there was a two-time national champion. at the weight above me, Oklahoma State was loaded. Like I said, we won couple of national championships while I was there and uh, a team uh, uh, titles while I was there. And so uh, I decided, you know, uh, I'd work, like I said, setting up the ring and the stuff like that on the weekends and on summertime and spring break and made pretty good money. And uh, so I, I, I called Jack. Jack, I'm going to leave school and I'll, I won't be a wrestler. He said, well, come on, you know. So he happened to be on a road trip. And one of the guys got hurt that night up in Joplin, Missouri. Gorgeous George Jr. with Jack's partner. He got hurt that night, and we were wrestling Buddy Coat, and uh, I can't recall the other guy's name, uh, the Dandy Jack Donovan. Mm-hmm. And so, well, who are we going to use for Jack's partner? And Buddy Coat said, how about your brother, Jack? said, well, you don't know nothing. Well, he wrestled in college, didn't he? Yeah. Well, let's teach him a headlock and a hammerlock and put him out in the ring. So they in the dressing room, they, they taught me a hammerlock and a headlock. And buddy said, don't do a thing unless I tell you to do it. He said, you know how to take me down, right? And I said, yes, sir. He said, don't throw a punch, whatever you do. And don't kick me, whatever you do. And so I listened to buddy and we got through the match and came back. And then we went out and did a two out of three fall match. And everybody seemed pretty pleased. And uh, from there, I just started working kind of regular and building in here and there until I got a full-time, uh, spot one of the guys left and they were gave me a full-time spot so 
that's basically how I started in professional wrestling. Wow. That's uh, that's quite a story. And, uh, uh, that I think we're talking about late sixties at this point was 69. It, uh, it was, yeah. yeah six, okay. So was it the wild West? What was it like back? I mean, in the, in, there were some rich wrestling territories down there. Um, but uh, a lot of people don't realize that how that all worked and it was, it wasn't just up North. I mean, there was a lot happening down South. There was some really, uh, great wrestling, even in Florida as well. Well, there was, and you know, by our gig there in Oklahoma, they, it was a huge territory covered, covered Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, parts of Texas, wow. Missouri, yeah. Kansas. So you're on the road quite a bit. My first gig, Leroy wanted to kind of use me, but back in those days, you know, and I think you were even when you're around, uh, I mean, if you're a local guy, they didn't use you too well in your, in your hometown. But uh, Leroy, uh, Leroy said, I'm going to send you down Louisiana. So uh, I went down there, and, uh, and John, well, the, house, the the crew down there was, was selling out, you know, Shreveport, uh, uh, New Orleans, uh, Baton Rouge. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we were in Jackson, Mississippi. And, uh, I mean, they were just packing. And I got an opportunity to go down there and uh, – and get on top and start working with the top guys. So it kind of cut the, the middle part of my career out. And I just, uh, when I started working with these top guys, I started getting better and better and better because I'm working with top talent And uh, Oklahoma. Now I'm going to tell you something here. That's very interesting. Leroy McGurk was a blind guy and he sat on TV right. and did, I, probably, you probably heard, uh, Jim Ross talk about this too. Leroy McGurk would do color commentary totally blind. He could tell by the sound of the mask what moves you got, what you were doing in the ring. And it was oh, phenomenal. And but, he uh, was accurate? He was accurate most of the time. He could tell by, you know, how the bump sounded, what you were doing. And uh, yeah. he was pretty accurate. And the guy next to him was a, a big shot uh, DJ there in Oklahoma City. And uh, if he was wrong, they would, uh, or Danny would, Danny would just, you know, slightly correct him. Oh yeah, you're right. You know, it was, it was a body slam instead of an arm drag. But and nobody they, listened they, to they, the difference. <laughs> nobody knew the difference. No, but, uh, it was phenomenal. So, uh, but, uh, Leroy also was up in age. So he remembered the wrestlers by what they looked like when, before he went blind, because he's in a car accident and lost, yeah, lost accident. his eyes. And yeah. so, uh, so these guys would come in, and most of the guys there were at the end of their careers, but they were very talented guys. But he, Leroy remembered them how they used to look. So, but he would get reports, you know, just like uh, Vince does today. You know, hey, this kid's getting older. So I started moving up the card because I was a young guy. I was the youngest guy in the territory, and so I started moving up the card because because of my youth and uh, these guys uh, wanting to work with me because we were starting to draw money. So uh, from there. Uh, Jack had returned to Australia. I'd come back from Australia and went to Florida. So uh, Jim Barnett, an old Oki, also, uh, Jack had told him about me. So uh, uh, Jim Barnett called Leroy McGurk and wanted to know if he could uh, let me come to Australia for a few months. So uh, Leroy said, sure, I'll I'll let him come down there. He's a good kid. You know, he'll he'll, he'll do good down there. So I went down for three months, ended up staying uh, 13 months in Australia. And wow. I had the time of my life. And from there, I went to North Carolina. So, yeah, you know, and but I, people I had, don't re- go ahead. I was going to say, people don't remember or probably even know about, uh, you know, the wrestling they had down in Australia with Jim uh, Barnett, as you mentioned, that went down there. And uh, for a number of years, that was a great destination. And then, of course, they had the Eurasian 
uh, you know, wrestlers that would come in through there. Uh, what was that experience like for you? Because, of course, you got your education in the South. Uh, that's one brand. But uh, how did it change and impact your, your, uh, your career going there? Oh, it was so different. Like I said, I was working with a bunch of very skilled veterans when, when I was in Oklahoma. Yeah. When I went to Australia, uh, like you said, Jim Jim was very successful down there for years, and Jim brought in guys. And you know, I was like everybody else. I I, I was a magazine rat. I, my my older sister worked in a drugstore, and every time the wrestling magazine would come in, she'd call and say, "Gerald, the magazines are in." And I'd go down there, and, and her boss used to get mad at her because I'd stand there and go through every damn magazine they put on the rack, <laughs> bending the all the magazine, pages. <laughs> yeah, bending all the pages up, you know, before they went on sale. And, yeah, you know. yeah. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, I got, you know, a visual of all these guys. So when I went to Australia, I, I went down there. There was Mark Lewin. There was King Curtis. There was uh, uh, Keller Kowalski, who I, you know, in a business, is, you, when you work with somebody a long time, they say you're married to them. So I worked with Keller, like, for three months straight. And you talk about an education. I mean, that was because I was still green in the business. I hadn't been in the business for barely a year. And here I am working with these great guys. And uh great talent. We went to Australia. We went to New Zealand. We went to uh, Singapore. We went to uh, uh, Hong Kong. We, we went all over Asia. And Barnett, like, like you said, he, he had, he had a, na- a national TV service in, in Australia, which was unheard of. There were only two channels down there. And we were, we were on for two hours on one of the, on the biggest national TV uh, station in, in the country of Australia. So we got to go all over and that show went all over also. So it was quite an education. Finally, I finished my year up there, and it was time to go. Rip Hawk and Sweet Hanson were there, and they were uh, the number one heels in uh, in Carolina. And they really liked my work. And, and they said, why don't you come to Carolina? We'll call Crockett, and we'll get you a good spot in Carolina. Well, Jim Jim Barnett was also trying to talk me into going into San Francisco uh, with Roy Shires. And um, I was really mm-hmm. tempted to go there because it was the West Coast, and I kind of wanted to see, at Oakley, kind of wanted to see what that that area was like. But uh, Jim uh, Jim uh, Crockett Sr. called Barnett first and told him, hey, send this kid here. You know, uh, one of my top guys is leaving, and I'll put him, I'll put him right on top. So Barnett talked to me and said, hey, you should you take Jim Senior up on his on his deal for you, and so I said okay. So I went there. Plus, my brother was in Florida, and we'd made this pack when when we first started out. You know, don't be a tag team write off. You know, you go do your thing, and I'll go do my thing, and you know, and then when 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 our careers start winding down, if we need it, you know, we'll team up for a little bit. So I went to Carolinas, did my deal, and he was down here in Florida. But we we're both you know ruling both of our territories and. Eddie and uh, Jim Sr. were, Eddie Graham and Jim Sr. were good friends, so they started exchanging talent, and Jack would come up to Carolina for a week, and uh, we'd team up against the Funk Brothers, and I'd come down here to Florida and team up with Jack, and we'd wrestle against the hottest team down here, so it was kind of a a tailor-made deal where we had the best of two territories at at an early age, and that was unheard of at that time, you know. That's uh, that's incredible, because... uh... You know, we think back at that time and people uh, who don't know about how those territories worked. And you mentioned a little bit, uh, Leroy McGurk and, you know, how you would exchange talent. And uh, if you knew what you were doing and, and you were a, a good hand, I mean, if you d- were, were, were a great talent, uh, you could uh, bounce between these territories 
and stay, you know, what, I guess seven or eight months until something would, you know, get to a point because we didn't have the internet. We didn't have uh, right. the, the TV coverage like we did today, uh, you know, when cable came along. So you could really have a great career just going between these territories. And once things wound down, you go somewhere else. And uh, it seemed like uh, that you and Jack understood that very early. Is that true? That's true, and you're you're exactly right on that, on that analogy. There, we 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 spent our entire career in the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida. I mm-hmm. mean, granted, you know, when Jack was champion, he traveled all over the world defending it. But we also, you know, because we we got so hot there for a while, Sean, and we, you know, promoters like in St. Louis, Sam Musnick, you know, would Sam. If you went to St. Louis, you know, you were considered one of the top stars in the country, and. Uh, and we started getting them, but St. Louis, and from St. Louis, we started getting booked in Houston for Paul Bosch. So we 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 were kind of really fortunate at the time, like I said, you know, when we came along because of our age and, and our our college style. We we wrestled. We didn't do a lot of the a lot of the the old school deal. We did we did stuff that we brought from college wrestling. Which made our 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 baby facing and he a little bit different than what the average guy was out there because most of them didn't go to school, most of them didn't have amateur wrestling backgrounds. But when when you have that background, you know, I had like like I said, I had I had ten years of wrestling. I went to Joplin, Missouri, and I'd never been at a pro ring in my life, and and I went out and had a, a twenty minute match that was probably a day because be be on Raw, you know, my yeah, very right. first match. Yeah. And that, I contribute that because of, of my wrestling background, but uh, it was really an asset. And uh, we got to move around a lot and and travel, like I said, to the to the really money towns. And from there, you know, we go to Japan. We go down to to Puerto Rico and work in Puerto Rico. Or up in Canada, work in Toronto. So even though we were based in these territories, uh, our name had spread where promoters were calling and wanting us to to hit their territories too. So. It was, it was a great time for us. So, you know, you, you mentioned the, the amateur background that you had. And now today we see that, uh, you know, with MMA, if, uh, MMA, if you have that uh, amateur wrestling background, those are usually the most successful uh, fighters there are. They're, that wasn't well, around back then. champions are amateur wrestlers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I've, you know, I've, I've uh, interviewed a number of them, and, and all of them, the ones that are the – they talk about that of all their skills of the – Having that amateur wrestling background is what makes them uh, who they are and, and, and as successful as they are. But this wasn't an option back then. So uh, how much of an advantage was it, though, making that transition? And was it difficult initially at first? Because, uh, you know, we talk about shooters. You guys were certainly <laughs> could be considered that. But at the same time, you got to work with people and not hurt them. <laughs> in a very early in our career, we realized the business was at work. Yeah, you know, and and uh, you know, we'd we'd won, we'd beat just about everybody we'd been in, on the mat with. So, uh, you know, and we knew who we could beat. We knew who we could mess with. We knew who who we shouldn't mess with. And uh, and it was just one of those deals where you know the guys were. Some of them would make for, oh, watch him. He's a shooter boy. He's a shooter boy. But we realized it was a work right away. And I think that's why, why the guys really uh, are, you know, our opponents and, and, and guys like the Fonks and the races and those guys, 
they knew that we knew what the business was about. We got what the business was about. So we learned how to work right away, and we stayed away. I mean, we would do our moves because they, they were signature moves. They were moves nobody else could do or would do. And so uh, we we got, uh, we got you know, teased about being shooter boys and all that stuff. But we, like I said, we knew it was a work. So we figured, hey, if we work with these guys, they're going to like us, and they're going to talk about uh, that to the promoters and you know we're going to get elevated so we knew you know we could beat you so why would i go out there and do it i mean if it's a work you don't beat me i don't care pay me that's all I, right. that's all we were after was what pay payday yeah but at the same time though if uh someone tried to uh, get uh, smart out there you guys could certainly uh, shut that down in a hurry i guess is the way to put it very few tried <laughs> but a few tried you yeah. know <laughs> but very few really gave it a good shot <laughs> Uh, at, at what point is, uh, would you consider, I mean, early on, of course you had so many things that would happen along your career, but where you guys really started feeling like you were among the elite that, uh, you know, that the NWA back then was really, there was, uh, a, 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 so much going on in there. Uh, at what point did, you know, after you had started, did you start uh, feeling that, you know, we are among the best out there? Well, you know, I never did, and I don't think really? Jack ever did either. I, I, I never did, and uh, and uh, I always looked around. There were always guys that I admired and respected, you know, that I thought was the best, you know. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. thought I could compete with them, and I thought I should be in the ring with them, but I never thought I was the best. I think that's when you start losing control of yourself when, when you think you're the best and you can't learn anything. I always wanted to learn. I would go, like I said, if I, if I was working forward and I'd go to St. Louis or Houston, I'd watch the matches out there. And if there was stuff that I, that, I, that I had done or I hadn't seen before, I would steal it. I mean, you know, as long as they weren't in my territory, you know, hell with them. I'll take their moves and go take it to Florida. Now it's my move. So when they come to Florida, it's my move. You know, I wouldn't do it in their territory, which these guys now, every one of them do steal each other's moves right, you know, right before the match, you know. And a second match on, and they're doing the same moves that, that the main event guys are doing. You know, which sucks, but we, you know, we had a system back then in those days that you watched the matches, and the promoter told you, you know, hey, this is this guy finished. Stay away from it. Don't do it. So, uh, so we would, you know. So, but I never, never ever fe- I felt like you know I was better than anybody else. I always felt I had to get better. I mean, you throw your throw a kid in the ring with Johnny Valentine, you think you're the best, you're going to find out you're not the best real quick, you know? So that keeps you grounded. Well, and then uh, you you mentioned the tag team action with your brother. And, uh, you know, at some point you realize that it's, it's going to make you a lot of money. I mean, over, uh, you know, uh, the first, what, 13 years or so, you guys win like 20 tag team titles. Uh, At that point, I mean, did you guys realize, you know, this is, this is uh, really our bread and butter. No, uh, it, it was just one of those deals where, okay, you know, Jack, uh, Jack wanted to do his career and he, he became world heavyweight champion. And after he, he became champion, I was junior heavyweight world champion, Right. did my deal. And, uh, you know, then the time came, you know, then, then, uh, tag teams started picking up steam a little bit and we, uh, you know, and our, and the Funk brothers, you know, Dory and Terry, they, those are iconic matches and historical matches, each and every one of them, whether they were single matches or tag team matches. But mm-hmm. we started hooking up with the Funks, and that's when we started really hitting it, traveling all over, all over basically the world with uh, Dory and Terry Funk and uh, working tag matches with those two there. And uh, 
and uh, you know, you, I mean, you you feel like you're good, but you know, you're there's always there's always better people out there. But uh, working with those two guys was it was a walk in the park. We go out every night with those two guys, and uh, it it was it was it was like a dance. I mean, we we were down so good together, and it worked out perfect. You had two uh, Native Americans against two Texas Cowboys, two Texans against two Oklahomans. And back in those days, there weren't a lot of real brother tag teams. And you had two real brother yeah. tag teams. And yeah. both, both, all four guys in the ring are very competitive guys individually. And uh, it just made for that magic in the ring that just clicked with the people and clicked with us. It was phenomenal. You know, and, and this whole time, and, uh, you know, your brother, it's not just your brother, he's your partner. And um, you guys are, are you conducting business through all this? And how did you. I mean, you're traveling all over the place, and in many cases, even all over the world. Uh, were you doing that at the same time and, and running businesses? Because I know you ended up, you know, you started with a, a body shop eventually. and But were you doing business then, too? Yes. Uh, yes, we were. We started the body shop in 1974, and that was just a deal. My One of my brothers uh, was going through a divorce in uh, Denton, Texas. He owned, he owned, uh, uh, my dad was a mechanic, uh, when he was with us, he, was, he did mechanical work. So we grew up around automobiles. So mm-hmm. my brother, uh, uh, went down to Dallas, uh, Denton, Texas and started a body shop and we were going through a divorce and he lost it. So he moved to Florida, wanted something to do. And, 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 you know, like we said before, we knew that we couldn't wrestle all of our life and knew at one time we'd have to have to hang them up and have fall back on something. So my brother wanted to start a shop and one of the three of us. So we started Bristol brothers body shop. And with the profits, we started buying uh, rental properties around Tampa and ended up about 35, 40 rental properties on top of it. So mm-hmm. we, we were investing our money, doing the right things and all that stuff. But, uh, we, we, we were, we were serving two, uh, two masters. We were serving the wrestling master and we we're serving the business master and our, our body shop started booming, popping. It was, for long, it was the biggest body shop in, in, in Tampa, Florida, you know, and uh, uh-huh. we had to spend more time. And Jack was at the part of his career where he was winding down and wanted to quit, you know. So he was spending more time there and uh, than I was and my other brother. So uh, so it, 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 it worked, a combination of, of business uh, on the outside and business with the wrestling business. It, it worked because we, we had a lot of time for it and, and a lot of uh, 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 I thought for it and how we were going to grow both, both businesses. So it was fun. It was a challenge, but it was fun. Yeah. But also, also you were involved in the wrestling business too. You guys had pieces of, uh, pieces I don't know, of two, territory, point, two major arenas. territories. <laughs> yeah. Territories. And then also like some arenas. Was this all uh, yeah, we had at the two same arenas. time? We had the Tallahassee sports arena and we had the Orlando <laughs> Eddie Grant sports complex. We owned uh-huh. it. So, <laughs> Wow. We did a little bit of everything, yeah. And I don't know if you know uh, this, but uh, Les Thatcher and I in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1972 or 73, could have been 71 even, we started professional wrestling's first T-shirt business. We actually really? signed Andre the Giant for a T-shirt. You can go on and what is it? I work no. here, give them a plug because you go to get our T-shirt. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you got a T-shirt, ProWrestlingTees.com yeah. or whatever yeah. it is. Help yeah. me out here and get yeah. Sean's uh, Moody T-shirt and get the Briscoe Brothers T-shirt. <laughs> there's one original shirt to show that says Briscoe Booster. That was the original first pro wrestling T-shirt 
in the history of, uh, of t-shirt business in pro wrestling. Uh, Les Thatcher and I started that in Charlotte, North oh. Carolina. So where did you we get that idea, though? Where did you get that idea, We were young, and we were going to rock concerts, and uh-huh. rock guys were already selling shirts, and, you know. I told Les, I said, man, that'd be fantastic. Why don't we Why don't we have shirts, you know? So we talked to Jim Crockett, and Jim Crockett said, I don't have time for T-shirts. I'm going to wrestle them tomorrow. Well, you mind if I do it? And this is Jim Crockett Jr. now. And he said, no, go ahead. And so this is, ends up uh, funny. Uh, so so we did it. We signed Thunderbolt Patterson, signed uh, Mr. Wrestling 1 and 2, Jack and myself, Les Thatcher, uh, and actually, Andre the Giant was signed with us, too. We had T-shirts of all those guys, and we'd take them to arenas. We'd load them up in the backseat of the arenas and uh, uh, take them. And, and at that time, you know, they were even new to arenas, so they weren't charged the percentages on it. So profit, you know, we'd have a couple of uh, big-breasted girls there in our T-shirts selling T-shirts, you know, and we sold them like hotcakes. <laughs> and, uh, Carolina's ran a lot of spot shows, baseball, uh, baseball stadiums and I'd go, I'd go early, set up my T-shirt, and I'd go out and scout and find me the best-looking girl there and say, oh, I'll give you part of the profit and give you a T-shirt if, if you'll sell my T-shirts during during the matches. We started doing so good that all of a sudden the building wanted to charge this percentage to sell them, so we had to start there. Then uh, it got so good that Crockett said, hey, you guys can't sell those anymore. So uh-huh. he kind of took the business away from us, so that, that didn't stop us. So what we did... Uh, we're good friends with Bill after as everybody was at that time. So we called Bill and he'd go back in some of those old, uh, after mags and, and, the, 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 uh, the, the Georgia program and the Florida program, both carried ads where you could go on li- uh, not online because they did that, but I go to right. send your money to a post office box, you know, yeah. and I sent, uh, uh, check or money order and we'd send you a t-shirt. So, through the after mags and the two programs we were in, we, we were making money selling those t-shirts like crazy. So we that's, we were we were you know we we wanted to make money. That's all it was. Yeah, but you're ahead of your time though. That I mean, that's like first drop shipping. You know what I mean? Like yeah. send us yeah. a little. We'll we'll you know pay put it up put it in a box and send it out. I mean that the first merch you guys were just yeah. ahead. And I know I I know I heard you tell another story that uh, at the arenas that you would sell. You know the, the, those cheap plastic cups, and you'd put somebody's face on them oh, or something yeah. like. Oh yeah, <laughs> at at the arenas, you know, we would sell beer at the arenas. We had license, so we'd <laughs> have beer, and all of a sudden, we hey, you know, how about if we Dusty Rhodes was hot? How about if we put to have a Dusty Rhodes cup and, and sell it? I charge you know three dollars instead of seven dollars for beer. Charge ten dollars, and you get a souvenir cup with Dusty Rhodes on. So we'd do Dusty one week. We'd do the Briscoe Brothers a week. We'd do Dory Funk another week. We'd do. Uh, Eddie Graham and Mike Graham, and we'd just we'd would make novelty cups. I mean, it's just something you know, Sean. You know, when when you want to make money, you come up with ways to make money. If you think sure, about it, you, but know, you know, gotta have. Uh, we were have we were we were college, like you said, we were college board. And I took some marketing classes, and, you know, and I I knew product was was what to sell. You know, and like I said, I was young, and I was going to concerts, and I was seeing what was going on with these rock and roll guys and the promoters, big shot promoters at the rock concerts, and. I would steal that and take to the wrestling business. Why not? That's, you know, they'll never see it. So. See, folks, if you want to know where it all started, the merch and wrestling, <laughs> right? You're just, you're hearing it right here because right I mean, here really, that's, the... that's brilliant. But you say, you say, yeah, we just want to make money, but nobody else was thinking about it, you know? So that, no. I mean, that's, that's tremendous. I mean, to have that, that's what, that I loved about uh, your story and your brother is that you guys 
you didn't wait for people to bring something to you. You're like, hell, let's we're we're gonna do it. We've let's got we'll it. save let's our money. And and it's a great lesson to, for for everybody. I mean, that that uh, even even today, uh, these guys are now taking back their own, you know, with their own destiny. A lot of these guys, you know, like the Young Bucks and and Marty Skrull and these guys, they are making a ton of money from their merch. Yeah. They have you to thank for this. I, I next time I see, I'm yeah. going to say, you know what? You just got to go over a little aside and just say, uh, thank you, Jerry. Thank. <laughs> oh, I, I'll know where it came from if they do, because I, I, I've never got a thank you from anybody. <laughs> Except Thunderbolt Patterson when I give him his royalty check, you know. And yeah. I, I, even back then, I you know uh, give three or four hundred dollars. And Sean, back in in the early seventies, three or four hundred dollar little little side cash money. That was that was that was pretty damn good money at that time. You <laughs> know, you get a weekly. You know, that's. A, some of these territories guys would work a week of them that would make five hundred dollars. You know, we were making three, four to five hundred dollars on merchandising at that time. Uh-huh. And uh, when uh-huh. we started that beer sales, uh, we were our our concessions doubled when we started novelty cups. Not uh-huh. only novelty cups, but we we would do all kinds of give giveaways, you know, stuff like just doing the promotions that you see that the rock and rollers are doing, you know. Oh, and, hey, uh, you know, if it worked for them, it's going to work for us. You know, and it did. And we had, we were fortunate enough where we had a promoter, a partner, Eddie Graham, that trusted our, our, our thoughts and our input because we made him money and, uh, yeah. he went along with what we wanted to do, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you guys got all this going on and, and of course you eventually become a, a scout. You still help out with the WWE now, but, uh, back then in a classic example, and I remember I had a. I, uh, when I did a podcast with, with Brutus, um, and he was talking about how you guys came to this club and this is when, uh, you know, Terry, and then he was playing in a band, uh, the ruckus, yeah. I think it was right. And you guys just came to this bar and is that, is that how it went down that you found him? You were just went to this club or you heard he, this guy was there. How did that all happen? All right. Well, you're, you're the first one to ask how it really happened. And yeah, I want the real that. story. Uh, uh, okay, here, here's what, uh, Hogan was a huge fan. He was a, from poor Tampa, you know, a yeah. very poor side of town of Tampa, you know, where the docks are and dock workers are and all that stuff. But uh, every Tuesday night, we'd see somebody, this big guy sitting about five or six rows at ringside, you know, watching the matches, never getting excited, just sitting there with the arms crossed, kind of watching the matches, taking it all in. So, yeah. I got curious, and this one young lady that I happen to know worked to bars here, you know, uh, barmaid in several nice spots, uh, uh, came up to us one 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 TV tape, which was uh, uh, Wednesday mornings in Tampa, and told us that uh, Terry Bollea, a big guy, wanted to talk about getting into pro wrestling, and she told us where he would be, that he was playing in a rock band called Ruckus over by University of South Florida. And uh, what night uh, would I, we asked will he be there Thursday night because we had a short trip or something and we could drop in the bar. At the end. So she said, yeah. So we went in there. Terry was playing, mm-hmm. and uh, we asked the young lady uh, during break, tell him to come down. We'll we'll go to the back and we'll we'll sit down and talk to him. So we saw him. We talked to him, and we said, okay, come down the next morning at uh, at the Sportatorium, and uh, we'll put you in the ring against Matt Suter. Now a lot of people don't know who Hero Matt Suter. It was oh, a bad one of the baddest men that ever walked yeah, in the ring, yeah. you know. He could hurt you and looking at you if he wanted to. And uh, so <laughs> we put him in with Terry, you know, and we, I mean, we get a lot of a lot of people back in the old days, oh, I want me a rass, I can do that crap. You know, anybody can do that crap. So we put him in against Hero Matsuda. 
and Hero would would make them seven foot tall and stretch the hell out of them. So yeah, right. we put Terry in there, and he got Terry in, in, in an ankle lock and, and wanted Terry to tap. Terry wasn't tapping, so he he cranked up on it, and he broke Terry's ankle. And yeah. um, and so we figured that was the last of last of the big guy. Yeah, well, the next morning at eight o'clock, Terry was down there with his ankle tape. that was bigger than a basketball wanting to get in the ring. Of course, we wouldn't let him get in the ring with his ankle. He'd go ahead, let the ankle heal up and then come back next week or whenever it's healed. <laughs> so that's, that's what he did. And uh, the rest is history. Yeah. Well, and, and, uh, and Brutus talked about that, uh, you know, a lot of these guys were considering that he had the long hair and, uh, they, there was the resistance to someone like that coming into the business. And of course you always. Uh, tested him, but uh, I guess that made it clear that that he really wanted to get into this business. Well, it did, and uh, that that was he's right about. That. I mean, uh, Brutus was talking about the seventies uh, and eighties with long hair. I mean, think about Jack and I in the sixties with that long hippie hair. <laughs> hey, hippie boy! I mean, we were yeah. you know I had bell bottom pants, I had flare shirts, I had the hippie hair. I mean, you know, a whole mm. nine yards. I was right. I still hell. I was twenty one, twenty two years old. You know. Right. <laughs> And I wasn't married, so you know, uh, I, you know, did what it took. <laughs> and so, uh, but uh, yeah, uh, long hair was looked at different back in the sixties and seventies. And uh, a story about Brutus and and Terry, you know, uh, I don't know if you ever heard the story, but uh, we 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 Terry was here, and he basically was going to quit because Johnny Valentine was booking, and he just really didn't know what to do with Terry at the time. And uh, uh-huh. Terry was green, but he was so big. We didn't want to put him out there and beat him because of his size. So we, we, I, uh, Jack told, uh, Terry, Hey, why don't, why don't you go up to Tennessee? I'll call Jerry Lawler and see what I could do. So Jack called Lawler, got, got, uh, uh, Terry, uh, Hogan booked in, uh, in, uh, Memphis and, uh, the, the golf stoves, uh, wrestling, uh, area up there. And we told him, when you're ready, because Terry wanted to go to New York right away. You're not ready to go to New York. You're not ready to go. When, you, when you're ready, when you go to Memphis and you, you do good up in there, you come back. Well, one day I, I just moved into my house here where I live now. And I knock on the door, I look, and it's it's, it's Brutus and it, it's Terry. And I and I have pool table room. So we come in. I come on in. So we started playing pool. And we started talking. I said, let me call Jack. Jack lives a few miles from me. So Jack came over. Terry said, I think I'm ready. You know, we did good up in Memphis. And by then, Terry was 330, 330 pounds and had a full head of hair and looked great, you know, tan like he always was. So Jack picked a phone call, Vince Sr., and uh, they, hey, we got a guy for you down here. And, uh, you know, you'll like him. He's, he's, he's meant to be uh, New York. You know, we he's so big, we, we, we don't have a spot for him down here. So Sr. said, send him up here. So, uh, we gave, I gave Terry a hundred dollar bills and Jack ordered Terry a pair of boots and gave Terry his first pair of boots. And I gave him a hundred dollars and we sent him on the road. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Terry paid me back a hundred dollars. Oh, wow. Well, that's important, right? Yeah. That's back real important. Well, I've given a lot of well, guys a hundred dollars. But, but it's not just a hundred dollars. It's just being stand up, you know, and I know that's it's important. Been, he's been the person that Terry is and Terry gets yeah. a lot of flack, but you know, he, he's always, every time I see him, he thanks me and he's always grateful and gracious. And I mean, you know, the guy remembers and the same with beefcake, beefcake, right? I was, you know, I went up to him after the hall of fame at Romania this year and he got me, he said, Hey man, it has a lot to do with you. And I said, man, I appreciate you saying that, you know, 
All the way from the Boulder. John, I got one of the best compliments I've ever received. It had nothing to do about wrestling. Bobby Lashley. I found Bobby Lashley at, at still at, at Colorado Springs, still in the Olympic Training Center at Colorado Springs. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine that was a uh, media uh, supervisor called me. I got this big uh, African-American deal, uh, fellow here that wants to be a pro wrestler. He was uh, 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 NAI national champion at uh, Missouri Valley State. And he wants to be a pro wrestler. I said, uh, uh, give, give me give him my contact number. So Bobby called me. I flew out to Colorado Springs, met Bobby, and you know, and I called back to the office, and we hired him, and we got him early out of the Army. He's still in the Army. But uh, Bobby Lassick, guy, I, I preached Bob, Bobby, save your money, buy property. So mm-hmm. WrestleMania, uh, Bobby's with his family. His two kids, his three kids, and his wife. He introduces me to his family and said, this is the guy who taught me how to save money and buy property. That <laughs> made me feel so good, you know, oh, better than yeah. somebody saying, I taught him a move and they, it's a favorite yeah. move, you know, because I helped this guy, you know, save his life, his future. You know, save his yeah. money. <laughs> and oh, his future. Future. Yeah. That, that, made, that made me feel so good that somebody would say something like that to his family, you know. Yeah, well, I know there's a long list, Jerry, of, of people that you, you found. And I, I do want to get into talking about how you uh, transitioned to a scout. But uh, before we do that, and, and you mentioned uh, being a member of the Chickasaw tribe. And I know that you are very proud of that. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you about those matches that you had with uh, Jay Youngblood and Ricky Steamboat, along with your brother. Because if people really uh, just see what that, you know, at that point, what you guys did. Uh, for Native Americans here in this country. I don't know if you were aware of it at the time. Was it something you guys were conscious about or you just felt that uh, it would come out uh, eventually when people realized, you know, uh, where you came from and and who you were? We were always very conscious of of who we were and where we came from. And uh, I think that's what kept us so grounded all the time. You talk to people about my brother, Jack, he was probably the most humble guy that you'd ever come across in the world. I mean, the guy had accolades that, you know, guys dream of, you know, of having, you know, and Jack accomplished everything he did. He was, he was, uh, he was recruited by the great Bud Wilkinson at university of Oklahoma to play football for him. And he turned it down to get, take a rationing scholarship at Oklahoma state. He was a very accomplished athlete, a very modest man, very humble man. And, uh, uh, Jack and I had, you know, they, everybody thinks that was Jack and I's first heel turn. We, mm-hmm. you know, we turned full ball heel in, in the Carolinas, but, you know, going around because we were hitting so many areas that sometimes you got to go into Kansas city and you'd wrestle their baby face team. And, you know, you'd have to get a little aggressive and, and we, we would never, you know, pretend like we were heels. I mean, that wasn't our game. We would still be a wrestler, but we would just be so damn aggressive and so so on you and in your space that that you hated us, you know. Yeah, we we were hills, but we got a lot of practice with the Funk Brothers down in Texas, when you know Oklahoma and Texas would, and cutting promos. You go down there and get on there, you know. Yeah, an Oki can cut a Texas promo, you know, at a drop of a hat, and vice versa. So uh, we'd already had experience, so we went into Carolinas and. It was at the very end of our career, and, uh, you know, we had never been tag team world champion. We'd run every top of the belt. We'd had some versions of them, but the Carolina tag belt was considered the world, the, the one, you know. So uh, Youngblood and Steamboat had just come off of one of the 
biggest angles ever was Sergeant Slaughter and Don Canoodle. And they set record houses everywhere for about two years. And Slaughter had just signed with WWE, so he was leaving, WWF at the time. So he was leaving. And so that kind of left Ricky and Jay out, out without a, two dancing partners. And uh, Jack and I were, were baby faces, and that was a big territory. They ran three towns a night, seven days a week. And that's a, that's a lot of towns, a lot of talent. But Ricky and Jay was looking for somebody to work with. One night we were returning from a town, and uh, and uh, Ricky just happened to pop up. Hey, why don't you guys turn heel and work with us? And uh, well, the four of us started talking about it. The more we talked about it, the more more good stuff we came up with. A road trip back in those days, where you did all your your figuring and angling, you know, because you had such long road trips. So uh, yeah. We the next day with TV we we proposed to Jim Crockett and they like I said they read three towns. Man, I can't do it. He said I, I need because of babyface driven territory. He said I need you guys you know to be our be our other babyface team. And Jack looked at Jimmy. He said I Jimmy I didn't come here to be the B team babyface. I come here to you know to be the A team worker. Uh-huh. And so you know if you can't use us you know well maybe we should find someplace else. And Jimmy said no. Well, if you really believe it'll work, we'll give it a shot. So uh, we talked him into it, and uh, we we just did it. We did a simple little deal, and it's it's still on YouTube now. Where uh, Ricky, I had to figure four on, I think Jay and Ricky did a chop to Jack across, a, and Jack hit the ropes and come off, and he dove on Jay and like a figure four. You know, it's supposed to when somebody jump on it, it's, you know, hurt hurt your leg. So. Jay sold it really good, you know, and, and Ricky, of course, they said we did it on purpose and back and forth. We would did another match, and then when the referee wasn't to work it, we did the same move on purpose behind the referee's back. And we just gradually, you know, wrestling-wise turned heel and just became very aggressive. And and then we ended up breaking all the records of Slaughter and Canoodle and uh, Young Boat mm-hmm. and Steamboat broke, uh, said, set two years before. And uh, we're off and running. It was, it was, it was. It was a pleasure working with Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood. Jay, you know, he, he's, a, he's a Hispanic, but he was going to, uh, as a native. And uh, right. there's always, you know, he wore the headrest. And, and a little backstory here: promoters always wanted us to do the ending gimmick, but we were we were so prideful right. of our, our of our heritage. Neither one of us, we were always refused to do that. So you, you didn't know? want so, it to be a gimmick. I didn't want it to be a gimmick. No, I said so who I am. That's I'm not a right. gimmick. <laughs> I'm right. Gerald Briscoe. Right. I'm Chickasaw, and I'm proud of it. You know. And, uh, so but was I, there a way to do that, like, and be able? Because, uh, you know, like you said, Jay was Hispanic, but uh, the way yeah. it was presented, like somebody with, uh, you know, we spoke with Chris Chavez recently, and um, it was important to him. He wanted to have that, uh, and was well, he thought it was to. a way he, he could promote. He we we could... had amateur wrestling. The difference yeah. between uh, Tatanka and Jack and I, we had yeah. amateur wrestling as, as our backup. That was that was our gimmick. Where amateur right. wrestling, wrestling was our gimmick, you know. Right. So, so you didn't Chris feel didn't the need have that. To do that. I didn't feel the need. Jack didn't feel the need to have a gimmick, you know, because we were who we were. I mean, never nobody could beat us, you know, and. Uh, Nobody could outwork us, and we knew that. I mean, you know, in the in the back of our mind, we knew that, but we didn't need a gimmick, you know. And I and so uh, so uh, during during the Steamboat Youngblood uh, deal, uh, the old back in the old days, you know, you always if if there was a uh, a Native American, you always stole his headdress and ripped it up and tore it up, and really made the guy mad. So right. one night I stole Jay's headdress, and 
They said, are you going to rip it up? I said, hell no. I said, my story on interviews tomorrow says, I have so much respect for this that uh, Jay Youngblood never earned that title of the chief. He just made himself a chief and bought him a headdress. Well, I resent that, so I'm I'm keeping that headdress as my own. You know, I'm not going to give it up. I'm not going to tear it up. I have too much respect for for the heritage of that and what that signifies, you know. Just a promo, a a realistic promo like that, you know, that uh, why should I tear something up that's sacred to me up, you know, when he's using it for a prop, you know. Did you mention your heritage? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And the thing about it, you know, the, uh, the, the announcers, they knew we're native Americans and especially Gordon Sully would enhance that so much. You know, he got the spirit, the fighting spirit of a native American. He got this of a native American, you know, you, you know, you can only push him so far before he breaks. And then, you know, that native American spirit, that fighting spirit comes out of them. So we had, we'd always prompt the announcers to build up right. our heritage and our background, our amateur wrestling and, and our, and our, uh, and our, uh, our, our bloodline, uh, on air. So we didn't need to dress up one. We let the announcers do their job making right. us native Americans and telling the people we're native Americans because we are, we're in the Chickasaw nation hall of fame, you know? So, uh, we are native Americans. So, uh, so that was the deal, and then we ended up having a match. Jay and I ended up having a match where the winner gets a headdress back. And so uh, uh-huh. the only time I ever wore a headdress in my life, I wore it to the ring that night because it was a headdress match, and Jay beat me, and he got his headdress back. But I didn't rip it up, and I didn't tear it up. And, everybody, I, and it got over, and everybody said, well, can't believe it got over because you didn't tear up his headdress. I right. said, well, yeah. it got over because of the story we told. And back there's a key word, the story we told. There's not a lot of stories being told now. Yeah. And, uh, I mentioned what, uh, great, uh, judges of talent you were, you must've seen a, uh, a magic in a young Ricky steamboat. How special was he? Oh, wow. Well, here, here's the deal with Ricky steamboat. And I don't know if you've heard the story, so you might be getting the scoop here, but the story's out there. Mm-hmm. Ricky steamboat came to us. He was from St. Petersburg, but he, he went up to uh Vern Gagne school and broke in with Vern Gagne. So after he broke in, he wanted to come back home. So he got us up booked in Florida, Richard blood. So I, at the time I was, I was doing the booking of the territory. So I always had to get to the arenas early. So I got there a couple of hours early and I walk in walk in the dressing room there in the baby face dressing room, sitting this really good looking young guy looks fantastic. I holy cow walked over and introduced yourself. He said, my name is Richard blood. And I said, Richard blood. He said, yes, he said, I just got here from Minnesota. Uh, uh, I'm booked here tonight. You know, I said, great. You know, so I introduced myself and I went and told, I got Jack was over in, in another dressing room. I said, Jack, you got to come and meet this kid over here. I said to him, man, he's good looking. He's a stud. He built like a brick shit house, but it named blood. We can't let a baby face be rich in blood. So Eddie got there. I told Eddie the same story. So I took Jack and Eddie over. We got Ricky in the back in the hallway back there. All right, Richard Bud, you're a baby face. You cannot have that name, Richard Bud. You cannot be Richard Bud. So we started coming up with names. And, you know, as old deal, we started coming up with the real hokey, Katiki named, Coke, uh, Cabana names, you know, mm-hmm. stuff yeah. like that. And finally, uh, Eddie said, you know, we had an Hawaiian guy here because Ricky's part of Hawaiian. We had a Hawaiian guy here that got over, Sammy Steamboat, got over like a million dollars. Why don't you be his cousin, Ricky's, uh, Rich, Rick, Richie Steamboat, Ricky Steamboat. Yeah. And Ricky said, I like that name. So he became, that's how he became Ricky Steamboat. So uh, once again, we had Ricky here and he was doing so good, but 
there was just no room in the territory for uh, a baby says which uh, we called uh, Ole and sent him to Georgia, and they got up there, and Ole was beating him every day, and Jimmy Crockett saw him. He said, send him to me over in Charlotte. I can use him because I need a baby face. So uh, Ole sent Ricky to Charlotte, and, you know, uh, and again, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. He did. He did okay. <laughs> he did okay. So I had a I had a hand in changing his name you know, from Richard Blood to Ricky Seaboat. Wow, that's great. Uh, yeah. Tell me about how the you guys never spent uh, much time working in the WWF WWE at the time, but uh, it became quite a relationship, as we all know. But how did that all begin? And and it was the it was just the beginning when Junior was taking over. Uh, when when uh, you guys. Uh, sold uh, uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling and some uh, Florida Steak. Tell me about how that whole relationship started and uh, where it went from there. Well, back in the 70s, when, when we were getting started, you know, there wasn't, like you said before, there wasn't no internet, there wasn't no online service, there wasn't no dirt sheet or anything like that. There were probably a, one or two little dirt sheets, but they weren't, they weren't like they are now. So if 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 the promoter had a good guy and he wanted uh, uh, some publicity, he would call Vince Senior and and get them booked on 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 a garden show up there. So after could bring all the magazines there and uh, they get stories on the the interview for three or four hours, taking me and pictures of you, and they would use them for magazine articles. So we were booked for Vince Senior several times. Danny Graham would call Vince, hey, I need to send the Briscoes up there. I need to send Jack up there. I need to send Jerry up there. And same with Jim Crockett. He would say, hey, I need, need a favor. I need to, need some publicity on these guys. These guys are my main guys. So that was really the way you got your publicity because, you know, they didn't have a big budget to send send photographers and uh, journalists down to territory. So the promoters would call Vince, uh, <coughs> excuse me, we call Vince Senior and get get you booked on a big garden show. That way you'd be exposed in front of all that New York media. So uh, that's uh, that's where I first met Junior. You know, we you know he was he was about the same age as me. He's a year older than me, and uh, we became friends, you know, casual friends back and forth. You know, because I didn't make a habit of going to New York and working. I just go up there maybe once a year for like three or four years in a row to get the get the get the the photo off for the mags and everything. So. Yeah. The more I went up there, you know, the more I talked to Junior, and you know, because we had a lot in common, same age and everything. He went to East Carolina, so he was familiar with uh, with Mid Atlantic Wrestling and and all that. And plus, Eddie Graham and Vince uh, uh, Senior were really close friends, so uh, we'd have Vince Senior down for our big shows in Miami and stuff like that, and introduce him. Actually, he's the, the WWF champion, uh, Billy Superstar Graham and Bruno down in Miami and Fort Lauderdale a few times to, you know, because that was, you know, in the, in the wintertime, that's where all the snowbirds come from New York. And so they'd see a familiar face. So let's go to wrestling with that introduction to Florida championship wrestling. So we had a pretty good co-op going, going at that time. Uh, uh so, uh, so anyway, I, I, that's how I met Vince Jr. And then, uh, then you know uh, we went back and uh, we uh, we started going and uh, and uh, I guess you want me to go into the story of how we made the sale, right? That, that was yeah, but but no, this is really interesting though because you mentioned how uh, you know a lot of people used that opportunity. It was for publicity because New York was the mecca. That was the place. That's where right. they had you know the uh, guys would go for these magazine shots and. Uh, 
you know, so it, it lays kind of the groundwork for this relationship uh, because you guys had another business going. I mean, besides while all your work all working and Vince saw an opportunity and, and uh, it was it seemed like good timing for you guys. Yeah, it was it was great time. We were, we're at like I said, it was at the end of the the Steamboat Youngblood uh, uh, run up there, up there with the, with the titles, and Jack yeah. was really wanting to retire at the time. I mean, he was just he was burning. Jack yeah. was only in his probably just turned forty at that time, uh, uh, which it sounds old, but in our business, it's not old. And so, but he was wise, you know, and saved his money and. Mm-hmm and and all that so uh we uh we uh we 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 had the territories there so we we developed a relationship with Vince. so he was jack was ready to, to quit so we went georgia championship pricing went under tbs being the first cable system in the in the united states you know that we went uh nationwide we started looking at there were a lot of NWA was really in financial trouble. A lot of territories and professional wrestling w- was dying at the time. I mean, just dying. There were just a few select areas that, that were drawn business where guys could make a living. So we, we, we took Georgia and we, we looked at the, at the ratings map that we get from channels, uh, 17. And at the time I was, I was slowing down too. And I, 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 I kind of phased myself out of the ring and started put the promoters hat on and I, cause we were opening up West Virginia, Ohio, and Michigan and parts of Pennsylvania to, uh, to the NWA through uh, Georgia championship wrestling. So we had two territories running out of one at the time. So they needed somebody to run that. And I was partner. So I took over that, that portion of it and kind of pioneered that. And we were busting open. We we're selling out every a business was bigger there. So Jack and I, you know, being who we are, we said, you know, why don't we do this nationwide? Well, Jim Barnett was our partner, Ole Anderson partnered, Fred Ward was our partner, Paul Jones, one of the original NWA guys. None of them wanted to go against anybody. None of them wanted to do what we saw what Vince was doing. And uh, we were copying Vince at this time. We were taking his lead, but we had the vehicle. He didn't have the vehicle to do it, but we had the vehicle. But we couldn't get our partners to do it, and our partners kept. We were uh, those Southern wrestling back in those days, and wrestling in general. A lot of promoters in the old days were shady people. I mean, they weren't very honest people. Even your own partners, you had to really watch your back. So we we felt we were we weren't getting our share, and we also felt like uh, like Ole was was drawing money from Jim Crockett booking his territory and drawing a book in our territory and double dipping. And we didn't like, and we had two territories running, but he was trying to book all three of them. And he, you know, he just couldn't keep all three of them hot at the same time. So we said to hell with it. So we, we, we got together one night, Jack and I was talking, let's sell our stock. So, okay. So we were going to sell it to So we went, we did the right thing. We went around, we offered to all the NWA guys. As soon as only heard we were trying to sell it, he was selling everybody, Hey, you know, this company be lucky to make it another year and it's not worth it. Now here's a guy that don't had part of the part of the Michigan, Ohio and West Virginia territory telling everybody his own territory that he's running, he's booking is gonna go down. So everybody says only oh, telling you're asking too much money for it. So uh so uh, of course we couldn't make the sell to an N NWA guy. So uh we we're at, at uh Mid Atlantic making doing promo day with Jim Crockett and we heard that Roddy Popper had been hurt, cut his fingers on a table and would maybe lose three fingers. So, uh, 
Somebody called Vince Jr. and, and asked about Piper, and Jim Crockett said, I'm not calling him. I don't want to talk to that ass. I don't want to talk to that bastard. You know, and uh, nobody else objects. If I, you got his number, Jimmy? He said, I got his number, but I ain't calling him. Jack said, hell, I'll call him. You know, yeah. so I want to know how Piper is. So I uh, picked up the phone, called Vince, started talking to Vince, asked about Piper and everything, and uh, got that all over with. And Vince said, Jack, I want to ask you a question. If you can't answer, just don't answer. Say, I'll talk to you later. And uh and when, I, when you get home, give me a call. And he uh-huh. said, are you guys interested in coming up here as a talent? And Jack said, I don't know. And he said, are you interested in selling me your territory? Uh, that's a possibility. But uh-huh. we're doing promos right now, Vince. Can I call you back? And uh, and uh, and so Vince said, yeah. So Jack come up and hung up. And Clark said, why are you going to call him back? And he said, well, he, he's easy. It, it, he, he wanted to ask me a question about it. I forgot what Jack said. But anyway, as soon as we got got finished with promos, we went to Jack's apartment and picked up a phone call, Vince. And we just happened to be off. That was a Tuesday. We happened to be off on Thursday. And Vince said, do you guys got any day off? Fly up there. So Vince flew us to New York. We met at LaGuardia Airport in the back when Eastern Airlines was running. We were in one of their sky clubs, Eastern clubs, and <laughs> and a conference room in there, and, and set up the deal. And that's as simple as that. <laughs> uh, tell me what it, what it was like back then, because this what a big part of this, uh, especially when everything was starting to change. There was cable. Now cable was in its infancy, but we all know how important uh, coverage is with uh, with wrestling. And at, at that point, like you're saying that. You wanted to expand. I, I, I assume that you guys understood, uh, you know, the vision of what was going to be happening. I think you know Vince did. He was syndicating his television programs, sending tapes to stations. But did you see what was happening in the landscape? Because most people just said cable. <laughs> That's not going to last. But did you see uh, the future? Well, you know, you hit it right on the head. I mean, cable TV when cable came out. Uh, a lot of people didn't know where cable was going, but wrestling yeah. promoters could see. Really, they, wrestling promoters thought cable was the worst thing in the world that could happen to the wrestling business. Right, right, yeah. The very worst thing in the world because their product was anytime you you know you got a, you got a local TV show in Arizona, say where you where you at, and you see that TV show every, every week. Well, all of a sudden, a new product is is on TV, and right. you've never seen these guys before. You're going to start losing viewers on on the one that you can watch every week, you know. And then all of a sudden, you're seeing these news. So, TBS was was the key, and and the promoters knew it would it would be the end of the wrestling business as we knew it at that time. I mean, we knew that, and yeah. the promoters knew it. We weren't. I mean, I mean, we weren't that smart, John. We're we were the only ones in the country that knew that. Uh, no, but you you, you know, understood cable, it cable, though, and you you wanted to go it. for it. Right, you wanted yeah. to go. We wanted we yeah. wanted to do it, but we didn't have the partnership to do it. You know, or that was willing to do it. And we saw what Vince was doing, and like I said, we kind of stole that philosophy from him. Hey, if he wants to do it, and he's doing it through syndication. Hell, we got we got national cable TV. It goes in every one of these towns that we don't have to pay for syndication, which he was paying for syndication. People don't realize that it was costing him a bundle to syndicate that show nationwide. Well, if you have cable, you didn't have to do all the syndications. You know, you just had the cable there, and you were hot. And not everybody had cable, but we would get the we would get penetration charge from WTBS that showed where our our shows was had the most penetration in in what in major cities. So we pinpointed those major cities. We sat down and, and had a, a strategy meeting. 
Okay, Cleveland, Ohio's got 345,000 viewers. Dayton, Ohio's got 125,000 viewers, you know? Mm-hmm. And our, you know, that's his syndicated TV show. We've got 30,000 viewers. So we're going to run this market here. And like I said, we were doing so good in those markets because we were new, new a new product that people were wanting to watch us. And we, we had some superstars, Tommy Rich and uh, all those guys, the Freebirds at the time. Everybody was so hot, you know, that we just had megastars and all, was, all the stars wanted to come to Georgia because of that TV uh, operation we had there. We knew, we knew we had the vehicle to do it. But we just didn't have the partnership to do it, you know, and we wanted to do it. But like I said, our partners were old school NWA and they just not want to do it. But Vince had the balls to do it. And so that's who we ended up with, the guy with balls. Yeah, And and, uh, it it turned out very well for you guys. And that's as with others who made that same decision, uh, Vince was very loyal to them. And I know over the years that uh, people that made that decision, he gave them a choice. Uh, either, you know, you get on the train or it's going to leave you here at the station. And uh, Exactly. Yeah, and you guys are among those who, who saw it. And uh, we'll fast forward here. Yeah, because we've kept you a while. But um, fast forwarding here, it became a, a, a really a, a big part of your life now. I mean, you've been uh, a part of the WWE now for uh, a while. And uh, I've I, been WWE 35 years now. Yeah, it's just it's amazing to think in all that you've done with uh, as an agent. People don't realize the the behind the scenes, but um, and I know I've you've told every, the, uh, Sean. I think I've held every position there was to hold with uh, <laughs> with WWE at one time or another. Yeah. I was I was amazed at each position. I mean, you know, each position I was very proud to do, and each position was bigger and better, and. Uh, and I, I, I'm a blessed, I'm a happy, blessed uh, man uh, for for making that decision. My alone to help my brother, you know, we made it work. Uh, yeah, and, and I know that. Uh, and there, there, there were no, you know, everybody says there were lifetime guaranteed jobs. There were no lifetime guaranteed jobs. If that, if there was, my brother would have been working when he died, but uh, but he wasn't, you know. And uh, so uh, it's just, you know, you know, Vince yourself. If you don't carry your weight, you don't stay with him, you know. Yeah. So. I feel like I've carried my wife for 35 years there because I'm still there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I know you've told this story, and it's it, it's just fun to talk about. But uh, with the, the Stooge era, that, um, but what I find, what I really just all, always wanted to ask you, and, uh, you know, I've tried to talk to Pat about, Pat about it, but, you know, like he said, he's the, he kind of just passes it off. But yeah. uh, at the time, when they, was, they suddenly realized, Vince realized the heat that he had. And this was after the Montreal screw job, of course. But really, uh, it could have happened sooner, as far as I'm concerned, because it's just a natural angle to have Vince. And he fu- suddenly realizes what power he had as a talent. And I always wondered, when, when you guys were brought into this, were you blown away by the reaction? Was it kind of just, oh, what the hell, just for a fun thing? And then, man, it just blew up. It took off. I, we were blown away. I mean, uh, when we when we first did it, we had no clue. I mean, we just and it just happened by accident. You know, I know uh, there's a certain guy who has a podcast that you know he planned it all and all this stuff, but yeah. it didn't happen like that. We were, we were somewhere Stone Cold. We were in Chicago, so we eventually called a special board meeting, and in that board meeting, you know, and yeah. I were in the board meeting. All of a sudden, we were Vince's right hand men. You know. Just off of this promo and just the little action, like I said, 
the goofier I'd be, the more older I'd be. So uh, I'm a pretty goofy guy at times. You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> so I've seen you in action. I just let it roll. And I had so much fun, Sean. I, I got to yeah. tell you, I, just, it was, uh, I had more fun doing that. I mean, I got beat up. I was yeah. uh, in my 50s, and Pat was in his late 50s. I got so beat up, and I was so hurt and so beat up at times. I didn't know if I could make it to the ring, but Jeez. the crowd was so responsive and so so thrilling huh. that you know that adrenaline would start flowing and that pain would go away. But I, I made it my 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 uh, my mission to take every guy's finish from uh, the choke slam from Undertaker to Tombstone. Huh. The choke slam from Kane, and by the way, Kane was a stiff son of a gun oh. in that ring, man. He could, it choke. <laughs> you're not supposed to be guy. doing that at fifty, Jerry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because that's the reason he was stiff, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it probably yeah. just felt stiff because nobody else can play him, you know. But uh, <laughs> but I, I just want to take a rock bottle. I want to take everybody's finish, you know. Just say, hey, man, I took everybody's here finish of yeah. fifty years. I went through a table, you know, did all mm-hmm. that stuff. I mean, I. I we, Pat and I did it all, you know, we were godfathers to a hand. I threw up on nationwide, nationwide <laughs> TV when the hand was born. You know? <laughs> so, we had a, we had, I had fun doing that. Yeah, Pat you had could tell. fun doing it too. He, tell. he, he tells it, he tells it all right, you know, cause Pat was so serious. Oh, that's but, Pat. but Pat. when Pat and I talk, he, you know, he, he oh, I had a boy he and he, he, he kids all the time. People are calling him, hey, Briscoe, uh, you know, I call him Briscoe sometimes. You're one of the students. Well, I'm one of the students, but I'm not Briscoe. <laughs> you know? so, well, you know, uh, we had Pete Gass on, and uh, you know, he talks about the Mean wow. Street Posse. And really, that uh, he recounted the, you know, that uh, after that, that uh, night that you guys had, and he's in a car. He doesn't know, was it good, was it bad? I mean, of course, you can see the reaction, but he gets a phone call. Uh, from Vince, telling telling that he was proud of him and it was great, and I guess it turned out to be, at, at the time, I don't know if it's been uh, it, the highest rated episode ever of Raw. Right? Highest rated segment of Raw ever, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Still to this day, because you know, the yeah, name, never, it, it, I don't think it will ever be broken. It was yeah. eight point something, eight point two or eight point three. I yeah. don't know what it was, but it was on cable. That's highest, you. Uh, yeah, it was the highest rated segment of all time for Monday Night Consider the stars that we were up here, even at that time. I mean, every major star in the in the business was with WWE at the time. You know, Stone Cold, The Rock, Mick Foley, all of them. You know, but we we had the highest highest segment. But it was yeah. fun, and we well, had a ball. And Pete Gas and and Rodney. I mean, wow, those two kids. I can't I can't compliment them enough. I mean, they were as green as grass. Oh my God! And yeah. we just told them to listen to us. You know, do what we tell you to do. And they they went out there and they listened to us and they did what, exactly what we wanted them to do. And they they we we told them to bring it. You know, be aggressive with us. You know, and then, so it yeah. so it would look good. You know, mm-hmm. and that night it just clicked. And I've you know I've had a lot of ovation, but that night I tell you, it was one, that was a thrill. And to show you, you know, you know how it is with WWE. You know, everybody, you have a good match, and people are in the back waiting for you to come, right. come through those curtains. Yeah. Well, you love and, the uh, love the crowd, but nothing means more than your peers. Uh, yeah, and it even makes me a little emotional. I, I, we finished that match. They got us out out of the ring, and we walked back. First one there was Undertaker. Yep. And he, he let Pat a cigarette. And Undertaker don't smoke. He had let Pat a cigarette, yeah. gave it to him, and he grabbed me and hugged me. And he said, man, that's the greatest thing I've ever seen. 
He said, I was sitting in the back and I heard the noise and I had to get, and you know, taker don't, don't sell nothing. He said, I had to get up and see what was going on. He said, I never enjoyed anything so much all my life. Thank you guys. And we walked through there and I said, an ovation. I mean, that was great. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, not, I mean, of course, you know, you can be in front of a hundred thousand people and yes, that's, that's tremendous. But when the guys that are back there and they see everything every day, they yeah. to have that uh, adulation from them is uh, really the ultimate for people to have their their peers tell them something like that. And man, that that's the awesome. biggest thrill you can get in the business. I yeah. think the biggest thrill you can get the biggest compliment you can get in the business when you walk through that back door and that curtain and there, there's all your peers there. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about your your uh, your health uh, with the strokes, and I know that. Uh, Vince had something to do with with uh, with getting you fixed uh, because I think you had three or four strokes four, before that four strokes, before they yeah. found yeah yeah that must have uh, uh, must I, have been I, a- uh, it, it was traumatic to me uh, I had one stroke I guess while I was working didn't even know it you know the first yeah. one uh, but they found the the blood spot on my brain when they did the, right. the, the cast scans and. Then the the, the next uh, next uh, next one uh, I remember having it, but it was just nothing. But the the, the third one, my wife found me on the bathroom floor. I, I was getting ready to go to Charlotte, North Carolina, of all places, and I uh, got up that morning and uh, and uh, went into the bathroom, was getting ready, and I, I guess I went to brush my teeth and dropped my toothbrush, and I, when I went down over to pick it up, all I remember I, I fell and I couldn't get up. My wife. I heard me fall and kicked the door open, saw me trying to push my arm over, grab my toothbrush. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting there. What are you doing on the floor? She said, I didn't know where I was or what I was doing or anything. Oh. So she rushed me to the hospital, of course. And I said, yeah, you, you, you had a stroke, you know, you're putting you in, in, the, in the hospital. So, you know, I got, I got over that one. And, and, uh, and then, uh, I, I, I had, I had another one. Then, then the third one I was getting ready to, or the last one, the fourth one, I was getting ready to go. I'd already changed jobs. Then, I, I, you know, after the first one, I could. Doctor said I couldn't go on the road anymore. So, I told Vince I was going to have to quit, and he said, "I'm not letting you quit. You know, you don't have to be on the road, but you know, you've been with me since the beginning. So, uh, you know, what do you want to do?" And I, I said, "I don't know. You know, I just want to get well. You know." So, yeah. he said, "Well, get well and make up your mind what you want to do." So, you know, I talked to Jr. and a couple other guys, a couple of my friends, Bruce, and you know, hey. You know, you do you 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 scout, and you're not even a scout. You know, we don't have a scouting system. Why don't Why don't you put that together? So I I said I, I called Vince. I said I want to be a talent scout. You know, I've already recruited uh, Angle, uh, a couple of these other guys, you know, Hogan and Kevin Nash, and some of these other guys that you know are on my list. And uh, he said, great. He said, when do you want to start? And I said, well, wrestling season starts in uh, October. He said, well, that's when you're starting. Just send me your 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 tournament list and i'll prove it and go go get us some talent so that's how i started doing the mm. talent scouting but my my fourth uh, my fourth stroke i was in uh, uh st joe's hospital here in tampa for a week and they ran every kind of a neurological test on me they could possibly run i thought you know and they couldn't find out what was wrong with me well my weight's good you've seen me sean i keep myself in good shape my weight yeah. was good my cholesterol was good my blood pressure was good everything was good and they couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with me you know <laughs> and why i kept having these strokes but uh 
like I said, I was on my way to Guadalajara, Mexico, and I got up that morning. I did an hour of cardio because I knew I'd be down there for a week, and I didn't know if I'd be able to do any cardio. So uh, I did an hour of cardio here in my house, and I went and got ready, getting ready, going to have a little bit of time. So I got on my computer, thought I'd check my email before I went to the airport. And I, well, I went to turn on my computer, and I had one of the computers at the time where you had to hit Control-Alt-Delete, you know, to turn on the computer. Right. I could not get my fingers to work. I could not get get my hands to do it. I had a stroke, I guess, while I was either showering or doing cardio, and didn't realize it. And when I, I couldn't tie, I couldn't get my computer on, so I just put my computer up and I couldn't tie my shoe. My son Wes was, was taking me to the airport. He come in and he, I was talking about. It. He said, "What's wrong, Dad?" I said, "I don't know. I just can't tie my shoe." And he said. Are you going to Mexico? And I said, yeah. And I said, yeah, we got to go. So he, he said, I want you to go. And I said, well, I need to go. So, you know, I was just starting and I didn't know. Stubborn, after know three you strokes, you don't realize maybe something's going on? <laughs> oh, yeah, but I'm, I'm a dumb. I'm Stubborn. A dumb so, uh, so he took me to the airport and his dad, and then all the way there, he's preaching to me. So I we get there and I, I can't open the door. So he said, I'm going to take you out. No, I said, let me out. Uh, he, so he went around and opened the door to let me out of his, his truck. And when he opened the door, I fell out of the damn truck. And I said, he said, Dad, you're not going. I said, yes, I am. So I walked <laughs> on in the airport. He took off. And when I got in the airport, I didn't know what I was in the airport for. Yeah. I didn't know where I was going. And so I'm standing there. I'm kind of lost, you know. And I, and I finally make it through security. And I don't know how I did that, but I, as I made it through security, it just hit my mind. I'm going to Mexico. I'm going yeah. to Guadalajara, where yeah. tequila's made. And I'm a tequila idiot, you know. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to say it. I love tequila. I'm an idiot yeah. when I drink it, you know. And I, and I said, you know, I might die down there. Yeah. <laughs> I get a body back. So yeah. I called Wes, and I said, Wes, I said, come and get me. He said, well, I'm, I'm right down the street here. I didn't go too far. So uh, I was hoping he'd change his mind. So he came back and got me. He took me straight to the hospital. They put me in the hospital. I spent a week in the hospital. They couldn't find out why I was having these damn strokes. I had had another stroke in my fourth one. So Vince, I was that Friday, I was getting out of the hospital. And so Vince called me right before I was getting out of the hospital. And, you know, having uh, Vince always cheering, you know, trying to cheer you up. And he said, you sound like shit, Briscoe. What's wrong? He said, tell me the truth. What's wrong? I said, Vince, I'm worried. I said, I've been in here a damn week. And they they can't find out what's wrong with me. Hmm. He said, uh, "You want me to get you a doctor?" And I said, "Well, I got a doctor." I said, "He said, do you want me to get you the best doctor in the United States?" I said, "Yes, sir." <laughs> and he said, "Give it, uh, uh, hang on about fifteen minutes. I'll have somebody call you." So about fifteen minutes later, Stephanie called me back. Uh, Stephanie McMahon called me. And said, uh, hmm. "We have a doctor in Pittsburgh all set up for you." Uh, when can you go? I said, when can you get me out? She said, we can have a plane there tomorrow. So they flew me up to Pittsburgh and they found that I would, I was, I had, uh, I had a blockage, uh, aneurysm getting ready to pop in my carotid artery. And that doctor Jesus. there said, you'll die. I can't let you walk out uh-huh. of this hospital. You got uh, aneurysm getting ready to pop in your carotid artery and one on your brain cell, a uh, brain stem. Yeah. So they, they, yeah, two, they immediately put me in intensive care. They wouldn't let me, they wouldn't let me walk out of the hospital. So I'm up there alone thinking I'm just going to get checked out, you know, and, and that next morning they're going to have to do major, two major procedures on me. <laughs> and so 
but uh, yeah, I credit Vince and Stephanie for that basically saving my life because yeah, so I, I would have I would have just gone on and ignored everything, you know. But they they had the the, the foresight and the, the kindness to uh, to call and give me give me the, the best doctors, and they went up and they found they ran a test on me. They found out right away what what my problem was, you know. Everybody Oops. was checking everything but, but those two things. But yeah. as you know, Andy Rizzo, they, they said, you can be one of those guys that walk into Home Depot and drop dead before you get to the front door. I said, Doc, I just won't go to Home Depot. I'll go to Lowe's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ace Hardware, anywhere, but I won't go to Home yeah, Depot. Yeah, anywhere but Home Depot. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, I'm going to yeah. drop dead there. And folks uh, who are listening. Home Depot. <laughs> but, but on serious note, the, the folks who are listening, you may not have Vince McMahon, uh, you know, uh, calling you, but take this stuff seriously. I mean, it's if uh, please, it comes please, down take to it from yeah. somebody experience. You're exactly right. Take it serious. If you get any signs at all, you know, my lip would swell up, and I just ignore it. I couldn't talk. You know, I had to ignore it. I was a tough guy. You know, I remember when I was in Cincinnati. <laughs> I was in the shower, and all of a sudden, I felt some pop in my neck, and that doctor said that was a stroke, and I and I ignored it, and I went to work. And you know how we work raw. I would showed up <laughs> eleven o'clock at. Uh, in the morning and left the building at 1230 that night, you know, then drove 200 miles to the next damn, uh, next damn town, you know, after having a stroke and didn't even know it. Yeah. Somebody's watching. That's, how, that's how your life is on the road, right? No, oh, yeah. no kidding. Uh, yeah. And quickly, and then I want to give you some questions. We've got, uh, you know, uh, some of our listeners, boy, when they heard we were talking to you, they, uh, they lit us up and I've got a few that I want to ask, but I did sure. want to, you mentioned being, being, a uh, a, a scout and, you kind of you pretty much started that for the WWE before uh, people would send tapes. They'd go through boxes and and uh, but you you took a whole different approach to this, and it is what they do today, which is uh, you know pretty awesome. It's kind of it reminds me of uh, I don't know a baseball or an NFL scout. Uh, what was your approach to this? How did you uh, you know and and uh, did you go out initially and look for talent? Well, I don't want to rehash everything, but you know I was like you know we talk with us amateur wrestler and. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm old, and, and, and most of the guys I was, I was wrestled with were in the coaching profession. So I had, a, like, Brock Lesnar came our way, you know, and Brock Lesnar, his head coach, he and I were in the same recruiting class at Oklahoma State together. Why we're called West. We were in the same recruiting class together. Jay Robinson, the coach, at, uh, was uh, Brock's, uh, Brock's coach at Minnesota. So, uh, I saw Brock. I watch, you know, because I'm a wrestler. I watch the national tournament. And I see this monster. He's a junior at the time, and he gets beat, but he's a damn monster. And so uh, I talked to Jr. about him. So Jr. pulls it up. We are, now we're fast forward where there's internet, so you pull up and look at guys, you know. So he yeah. pulls up a picture of Brock. Oh yeah, this guy is a beast. I get him. I said I can't. He's a junior. He yeah. said, "Well, make sure we get." Him. I said, "Don't worry." Uh, so uh, the next year he's a senior. So. Uh, he wins the national that 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 year, and uh, I'd already called Jay Robinson, you know, before the national tournament. And Jay Jay told me, uh, "You got him, but please don't call him. I don't want him to, any distractions him because he's going to win nationals for us this year, right. you know." And he's a guy that's easily distracted, as we've all found out. He's, <laughs> he's easily volatile. distracted and moves <laughs> on. <laughs> you know? yeah, and, yeah. Uh, Jay didn't want that happening to him, yeah. so I gave Jay. He said, uh, "Jerry, I give you my word." As soon as the season's over with, I'll have him in my office, and the following week, I'll give you a call, and you can do what you want to with him in there, but he's going to win a national championship. All right, Jay, I take your word for it. So 
I'm getting called from there to there. I'm both, hey, yeah, what, what's the deal? I said, I'm not talking to him. I, I, I promised his coach would, that I wouldn't talk to him, distract him until after the season. And, and his coach is a good friend of mine and uh, one of my ex-teammates, and I take his word for it. So <laughs> three days after the national tournament, my phone rings. The Briscoe Brothers Body Shop, it's Jay Robinson on the phone. And he said, hey, I, I, I got Brock Lesnar. And he said, I got your bonus. I got my salt and pepper team. I got Brock Lesnar and Shelton Benjamin for you. You wow. can have them. And so too. I scored two right off the bat, two yeah. of the best performers in WWE history, right yeah. off the bat. We were my first coup, you know. Yeah. Wasn't, wasn't a bad way to start. No, right? no, <laughs> And you're right. From there, I mean, we had no scouting department, as you know, at the time. Yeah. You know, I was yeah. it, you know. Yeah. And from there, now we're scouting the entire world. You know, the Paul Fair that's with us, he's a football expert. Uh, William Regal does the international guys from the UK and and that part of the world. So, uh, so uh, we we got a uh, we've heard uh, you know at Canyon Seaman who was on the world team volleyball. He's he's ahead of our our developmental system. He does a great job and he he knows athletes and he hired uh, Paul Fair who was head of IMG here in uh, Brandon uh, Bradenton, Florida. IMG for the football nuts out there. They're the uh, football academy here in Florida, probably the top football academy in the United States. And IMG management is one of the top management companies. So the two guys that they've hired to, to, to manage uh, the, uh, the division, the scouting division are awesome people and know what they're doing. So I'm working with some really qualified people have uh, Buku's respect for, uh, Regal and, and, uh, uh, for the international and, uh, we have a camp coming up in June that uh, my amateur wrestlers are coming to that are my latest crop. And we've signed some really outstanding guys. There, there are four or five on TV right now that, uh, that are stars that, that were, that were amateur wrestling stars. So we opened up a, a new, new, uh, division of WWE that brings in the talent that brings in the food, you know? So, uh, yeah. It's working. Everybody seems to be happy with it, and uh, I'm still going at. It. I love doing what I'm doing. I love helping these young men uh, get a career. I, I just signed this one guy that uh, when he was a kid, he was like Mick Foley. His parents bought him every belt that WWE ever put out on, on the merchandise stand and all the T-shirts. So he was jumping off houses, jump beating up his brothers and all that stuff. And this kid's six foot three and a half and two hundred forty-five pounds and. Uh, it can talk like a uh, million dollars, and he's he's going to be the next. I'm not going to say he's the next rock or really? Cena. He's yeah. going to be the okay. next. Uh, and five years from now, you'll know who I'm talking about. Okay, you can't give us his name. You can give us. Well, if you go online, I, I don't want to give his name. I don't want to put any pressure on the guy. I don't want. Okay, to give, all right. I don't no, want to give him a name. You know, yeah. you put pressure on a guy. I yeah. put. I think I put too much pressure on him in the beginning because. Uh, SI.com, uh, Casey Joyner did like a 3,000, 5,000 word, uh, essay on, on, on my recruitment of this young man. So if That's you look good. up Casey Joyner on Twitter, you can probably follow his line there and find out who I'm talking about. And you, you write his name down cause in four or five years, his goal is to be the fastest guy ever to get out and develop metal and be on the main roster. And I think this guy could do it. Yeah. You know? might do it. You know, and it, it's amazing to me that it, it, it took so long because Vince has always been kind of, uh, you know, ahead of everything that's going on in broadcasting and everything else that to become that, you know, the, the that focus because before, and I think a lot of people even think today, oh, they find these guys that are in these independent places, which of course they do, but it's so much richer than that. I mean, you're out there, there's you know, oh, yeah. scouting 
the amateur ranks in college. You're scouting uh, MMA. You're, you know, and you've, like you said, Regal does the independence. You've got people in Europe. It's it, it really is. John, just, they they sent just me the Rio de Janeiro for the Olympics for ten days to scout guys. We brought eight guys back from Olympics in various wow. sports, you know, and yeah, I sent me to Paris for the World Games. So. I'm going to Tokyo uh, for the Olympics. So there, you're right. It, it, this is ahead of the game, and uh, it's it's shocking, you know, that we didn't have that. But yeah. you know, we, I'll tell you a story that happened in 1993 or 94. I can't remember the word when all the territories started drying up. You know, before Vince, Vince, when Vince started, he, you know, there were all these territories. He, so he went and cherry picked the top talent out of each territory. So when he would go into that market, he would already have an established star. And so that's the reason WWE grew so quick. I think because he he had already purchased all the, all the major stars in each one of these uh, local territories. So when he ran in there, he didn't have to establish talent. He already had very established talent that he could plug in and, uh, and draw a house with. So, in the 90s, those territories started going out of business because WWE and WWF was so big and so hot at the time. You know, we were driving everybody out of business. So uh, the talent pool dried up. Right. So and I found a letter. I was cleaning out my, my door. Somebody wanted some information for uh, the National Wrestling Hall of Fame out of Stillwater that went in the College Hall of Fame uh, that it went in last year. They want some uh some pictures. So I, I started going through some boxes of stuff I got up in the attic, and I found this letter, dated 1994. To Vince McMahon, uh, you remember Lisa Wolf? Was you around Lisa Wolf time, or is that after you? No, you that, was after, that? that was after me. Uh, she was she was uh, HR director, and uh, uh, some Cesar Diego. I can I hated the guy because As Aspar was his name, and he, he thought he was he was one of the big international guys. Thought he knew everything, but he didn't know a clue about wrestling business. So. Uh, so anyway, uh, the talent pool was drying up. So Vince, Vince uh, called us all together, all his you know inner circle together, guys. As you know, the talent pool is how how are we going to develop talent? So I want you guys to come. I, I found this letter in 1994 that, that I come up with about a developmental system here in Tampa, Florida, mm-hmm. at the old Sportatorium where uh, Florida Championship used to have their offices. It had a ring set up. It had an upstairs where you could like make a little dormitory. We could teach guys editing. We could teach guys broadcasting. We could teach guys wrestling. We could, we could do the whole school there. So in 1994, Vince was thinking about where we're going to be able to get talent, you know, and everybody thinks that all of this, uh, NXT thing just happened, you know, just, but no, this no, has no. been in the planning since yeah. 1994. I know yeah. cause I was involved in it. So, yeah. uh, but it's had several incarcerations, as you know, you know, we had OVW, we had FCW, you know, we've gone through quite a few different systems, you know, until we, until we got our own now. So, uh, yeah. It's just but he amazing. was ahead of the curve in 1994, yeah. knowing that we'd need an outlet for talent at some time or another. And, the, yeah. and, the, and that's what we're doing now. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, as I said at the uh, the top of our conversation here, what a life. And I, I know you're not done yet. Jerry, thank you so much for coming on Primetime. Thank you, brother. It was a pleasure, and I, it was a great conversation. I enjoy these conversation-type uh, podcasts. I, I appreciate you having me on, and best of luck to you.